Hey, Rory, what an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Um, really, really excited to be talking about your fantastic book, Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense. Oh, what a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Can we jump straight in? The, one of the things that I would love to pick your brain about is people's behaviour right now. What is it that you're seeing unravelling? And, and I think I want to sort of follow that on with not just what you see unravelling in terms of behaviour, but what do you think is going to be permanent versus temporary? Um, a lot will be highly temporary. And I agree with Mark Ritson on this point, that there's an awful lot of bogus futurism going on. Um, there's an awful lot of, you know, bogus trend spotting. And quite a lot of it involves a degree of kind of wishful thinking. And so there are people, you know, I was joking, saying the other day, you know, well, after COVID ID crisis, you know, short, fat, curly head men are going to receive a lot more respect in the workplace. You know, in other words, it's kind of fantasy version of futurology. And you've got to be very, very careful about that, because as Bill Burnback famously said, you know, the focus of marketing is the unchanging man. And there's an awful lot about human behavior and instinct, which um, doesn't change very much. Now, in fairness, I'll take a slight pushback against Mark in that whereas I think the fundamentals of human motivation and behavior uh, stay fairly constant, uh, you know, they've been produced over a million years, so they're not going to change in a decade. OK, um, what often happens is the way they manifest themselves does change. And an example of that is status seeking among humans and positional status seeking is to an extent innate. You know, I don't think we're going to do anything about it fundamentally. However, what you do see over, you know, reasonably short periods is that the currency of status changes. I mean, I, you know, I'm very interested, by the way, in the marketing of the property market, simply because property, although it's very expensive, receives very little marketing attention. And it's interesting to note that when the Beatles first made a stack of money in the 60s, they bought a big country house in Surrey. Now, a rock band wouldn't do that now. They'd go and buy a house in Camden. OK, so, you know, within you know, a period of a few decades, the fundamental motivation is constant but the manifestation of it. Now, Jeffrey Miller, I think, in one of the very few cases of really inspired futurology, he's an evolutionary psychologist, and he predicted that social media, um, and this was before Instagram even existed, social media would change status behavior so that, for example, among an Instagram generation, your car would become much less a marker of status. In fact, if you live in a fairly urban setting, your colleagues and your friends don't even know what car you have necessarily, whereas where you go on holiday would achieve a greater level of significance because suddenly you could share live pictures of yourself sitting on a beach somewhere to all your friends toiling away in the rain. And therefore, the way in which we show off is different, even though the fundamental driver is the same. There's another thing which I think is significant, which is that since World War II, um, this is a rare case of something which is worldwide and simultaneous. So what happens when you impose new behaviours on people for a short time is they will to a degree, and this is why I predict we were talking before this recording started about how a large number of conferences will offer now a virtual streamed alternative to the physical attendance option. And part of the reason for that is having been forced to work on Zoom 
uh, for the last few weeks. Uh, in the case of my own staff, they've been forced to work on Zoom for the last year and a half, two years, because I'm a major Zoom and video conferencing evangelist. I think we've entirely failed as a business to ask that perfectly sensible question, how can this change the way we work for the better? Because it is a transformative technology mm -hmm. in both distance terms and chronological terms, how we use our time can be reinvented. I've repeatedly been irritated by the fact that, uh, and this is of course after COVID ID and the problem of um, COVID ID 19 and the, the problem of overcrowding, it always annoys me that people get up early in the morning, travel to work on an overcrowded train uh, with a full fare peak ticket, and then spend the first two hours of their day doing email. I think one you do the other way around, right? Because if you if you your email is not any different at home from than the office. The office is a place to talk to people. There's no point in coming to the office to stare at a screen. Do your email first thing in the morning, then travel in on an empty train, during which journey you can probably work on the train if you want to, or just read a book in a pleasant, uncrowded environment, and then come in the office and talk. There's no point in coming to the office to stare at a screen. I mean, you know, one of the first things we did, fascinatingly, um, it, when uh, we went into lockdown is a very heroic PA in my team uh, went into the empty office, uh, basically took all the monitors out of our off our tables and shipped them to people's homes. Now, when this is all over, I think those monitors are going to stay home. Yeah, I think that's interesting, right? Is um... And um, so one of the things is that when you're forced to do things differently, what happens is you discover things about the new way, which are better than the old way. And so it's, it's in a sense, it's a de-biasing exercise because in a standard working environment, if the most senior person in the room didn't really like Zoom, everybody else was forced to attend physical meetings. And so it wasn't a democratic process. It wasn't a, a, a product of aggregate preference of the people present. It was very much driven by the behavior of the most senior person. And if the most senior person, who tends also to be the most Luddite person in the, in the meeting, at the same time, doesn't really like something, it doesn't happen. And so I went full on um, uh, counter trend to this and basically said, why are you having a physical meeting? What are you doing traveling? Why don't we do this over Zoom? Um, slightly motivated by selfishness because I live slightly outside London. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, the point was that when you're forced to do something differently, then uh, essentially it rebalances your uh, your, your perception of strengths and weaknesses. And before this happened, I think the weaknesses of video conferencing were very salient. We talked about that earlier, where, you know, yes. the first 10 minutes of the meeting were spent going, you're on mute, you're on mute. Can anybody phone Dave? You know, and so on. And once you reach a point where the worst person in the meeting is tolerably competent, it's an inflection point. It's a phase transition. Everything changes. There's been a lot of talk about that. Is is a lot of the the behavioural change or, or changeful stuff just going to be stuff that was happening anyway? It's accelerated because of this period of having no other choice. Yeah, I mean, we were also. I think I'm genuinely mean this among marketing services companies because half of our income is earned for talking. Okay, okay, we produce decks and we produce work. But part of the value of good marketers is that they converse interestingly about marketing problems in a way that gives you new and valuable insights, one hopes. And so 
you know, my argument is that one of the things we never noticed, and this is just a, a very interesting thing, we never noticed how slow email was because while we were typing quickly, our idea was, gosh, I'm doing this quite fast. And I always use the analogy when I talked about this, that when you go 30 miles an hour in a boat, it feels really fast. 30 miles an hour in a car is not a white knuckle exciting experience, okay? And so, interestingly, we tended to think when we were typing quickly that we're being productive because the alternative universe in which we were speaking wasn't available to us. Now, if we held this recording and I started speaking at the speed I type, complete with deletions, backspaces, and then, by the way, a pause of 25 minutes for you to reply, okay? This, this very conversation we're having would be intolerable. You know, you, you'd basically find it unlistenable to. I mean, another very important thing, by the way, about video conferencing is nothing to do with video. It's about sound quality, which is if, you know, if, if radio broadcasts had telephone quality, nobody would really listen to the radio for very long. Um, and so um, it, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting question to raise, which is just that... Um, I think this is enough of an approximation to face-to-face -face contact mm -hmm. that many instances of travel and face-to-face -face contact can be replaced. Not all. Uh, it will also generate more face-to-face -face contact and travel in some respects because it will be easier to work with people on different continents. And as a result, as a part of those projects, you may end up traveling to that continent once. But nonetheless, the ratio of video to physical was completely out of whack. By the way, I'm not suggesting it should go from 0 to 100 to 101. I'm merely saying that whatever you think of the ratio, it wasn't optimised. Understood. And just on that point of travel, I think that's a very interesting one. So, so certainly it's, there could be a scenario where we can't travel for some time. And during that period there, I suppose, obviously, we have the option to video from a work perspective, which may make it easier and open up some barriers. But circling back to your other point around status, and using holidays as a form to demonstrate your status. Be interesting to know what you think might replace that as a temporary status. So if I can't get on a plane and spend some money on a holiday, what might I be spending that money on? Or do I not have any money, you know, because things are obviously incredibly challenging right now. Um, it's a very interesting question. And of course, this thing will affect people in extraordinarily different ways. I mean, there are undoubtedly people who are uh, still working, who are now actually saving quite a considerable commute cost and are probably saving more money than ever through this. Yeah. And there are people equally at the other end of the spectrum who've been financially devastated. Um, I have to confess, this is a moment of confession. I always donated my speaking fees to Ogilvy. And at times when the speaking fees got quite large, I was sitting there thinking, God, Rory, you are a mug giving this money to your employer. But at the, at the moment when suddenly 27 upcoming conferences were cancelled, I... I, I I felt a huge sigh of relief that I'd always done it that way. Um, <coughs> but um, uh, the, um, the interesting thing I think there is that, no, that's a question that's very difficult to answer. Mm. Um, you might find that travel, uh, I mean, there's a thing in Scandinavia called flugscam, which is the shame attached to flying. And you might find that that, it's not, I mean... <laughs> Let's be honest about it, okay? Business travel is a kind of status symbol because the very fact that someone's yep. prepared to pay several thousand pounds to talk to you is a pretty good proxy measure of your value. Um, and 
you know, but well, but the extent to which that shifts a bit. What I what I'd like to see, and I, I'm not sure I'll see it. This is again wish wishful thinking. I think in in um, I would like to see a world where we do less of better, more expensive things, and that would apply to everything from clothes. I think I do think, and, and if you've read my book, you'll see it's it's a fairly widespread assault on the lazy assumptions of economic theory, particularly mm-hmm. microeconomic theory about human behaviour. And I do think that economics biases the business world and to some extent the the government world the public policy world into assuming that what everybody wants is more crappier stuff at a lower price and my observation of what is really successful in the marketplace you know if you look at billion dollar companies of the kind like Dyson or Red Bull or whatever is people actually want better stuff at a higher price in slightly lower quantities and there, you know, there is an interesting question around that, which is that there are certain forms of travel which are I would I would hate to see disappear. So you know, we can always get very smug about this because we we tend to regard ourselves as travellers, and they're very clear. We've got to be very alert to kind of self-serving bias in the way we look at travel. I, of course, am a sophisticated person who goes around Italy looking looking at art galleries, whereas the rest of the people are just rubberneckers. But there are forms of travel which strike me as fundamentally unhealthy. And the example I'd give is someone going long haul to a destination for a week on the assumption that they're only going to make that journey once. And so an example would be, okay, if you're, I'm not blaming the Chinese for this because we're exactly the same the other way around. You know, there are cities of 10 million people in China that I've never heard of. If you ask me what, you, you can only go to China in one week in your life, what would you like to see? I'd go Great Wall of China, Forbidden City, Panda, um, Terracotta Army, Wet Fish Market in Hubei province, okay, in Wuhan, which is now the fifth most famous place in China, um, if I was feeling adventurous, okay? Now, the point about that is that when everybody, now if you take Chinese people going to Paris, you basically have a list of five things and they all do those five things. And as a result, the Mona Lisa is now unvisitable. It's pointless. When I went there as a teenage kid, you know, it was the most crowded room in the Louvre, but it wasn't, you know, I went, went up to the painting, had a bit of a shifty, you know, um, uh, then, you know, after two or three minutes looking at it, I was conscious of the fact that other people wanted to look at it. So I moved out of the way, but it wasn't, you know, 5,000 people with selfie sticks incapable of getting within, you know, 300 feet. Even my daughter, who's very skinny and very pushy, was incapable of even getting close to the thing. Now, at some level, that kind of winner-takes-all tourism is dumb. You know, in, in my defense of my travels to the United States, okay, I know the United States very well. And when I go to the US or Canada, my travel is fairly nuanced and broad. Where I go to Italy, you know, I don't just go and see the Leaning Tower of Pisa and, the, you know, the Colosseum. You know, I, you know, I discover small towns. And, you know, and when I go to the United States, yeah, I have seen the Empire State Building. But I've also been to the Wisconsin State Fair and, you know, been to, you know, weird hippie colonies in New Mexico. So it's a fairly nuanced form of travel in, in its defense. Whereas the other form of travel, which is Latin America, okay, let's check them off, right? Machu Picchu, Iguazu Falls, Copacabana Beach, Rio Carnival, um, probably Buenos Aires for some reason, okay? 
and then we're going, um, yeah, uh, that's it. Okay. And so when you get that problem where you get this insane um, asymmetry of fame driving the behavior, I think you've got a real problem. And um, um, if we just, um, if we flip for a moment on one of the core themes of your book around illogical thinking, can we bring that to today? What, what brands specifically are you seeing that are adopting kind of what we would describe as illogical thinking, but they are likely to come out of this and be remembered very favorably? Uh, it's a very good point. Um, I, I mean, I think, you know, uh, there's been an awful lot of fairly sameish advertising around this, which is, uh, you know, uh, uh, slightly formulaic. Um, I, I don't think anybody will forget Louis Vuitton producing that incredibly minimalist packaging around uh, hand sanitizer. Yeah. Um, I think that, um, uh, you know, quite a few, uh, you know, I mean, it obviously divides into companies that can easily repurpose themselves to do something heroic and companies where it's more difficult. Um, but um, one of the interesting things is undoubtedly quite a lot of interesting work in, in the behavioral line uh, has gone into looking at, for example, uh, you know, creating readily uh, usable social norms of behavior. And in fact, you know, the six feet apart rule um, the hand-washing rule, it's worth remembering that the only interventions that are meaningful really now are behavioral. Um, and so, you know, although behavioral science got a bit of a kicking because people, I think, wrongly thought it was responsible for the herd immunity strategy, uh, when I don't think it was. I mean, it isn't, by the way, it isn't the job of a behavioral scientist to determine the behavior. It's the job of an epidemiologist to determine the behavior. And the behavioral scientist translates that into easily followable um, and sticky human norms, you know, behavioral norms. Um, uh, and um, so, but I think one of the things I think we can say about the UK, the US is slightly different, is that people have generally complied for a duration and to an extent that is higher than that which many people predicted. Yeah, I think week by week it's improved as well. People seem to have adapted more and more, right? Which is yeah. what you'd expect as well is with time... It's not quite a new norm, but it's certainly less unnormal, if you like. And there's an element of sunk cost bias, which is I'd be pretty stupid having now achieved seven days or 14 days of continuous isolation. I'd be pretty dumb jeopardizing that just for the sake of, you know, buying a ice cream or something. Mm -hmm. OK, so it probably has a kind of sunk cost bias element to it. Um, you know, so, um, you know, um, and it, it's also been helped by, in, in a weird way, this is an unfashionable opinion, uh, British tabloid journalism's brilliant talent for shaming, which is mostly an annoyance, is probably quite valuable at times like this. Agreed. You know, that, that, that curtain-twitching um, sanctimoniousness uh, is not always undesirable in many ways. And uh, so it, it, it's unusual for me to, you know, high five the Daily Mail or the Sun, but they they played played a part as well, I think. Um, as have celebrity illnesses, of course, which I think are important. Um, but but the brand, the brands that have done well, I mean, uh, Unilever, I think, have done some very credible work in Canada, which I think is, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, very very good. Um, I think that. Um, uh, you know, one of the most important things is it's really this is a case where brands are more about what they do than what they say. And I think that's an important one because um, 
the best the best ads about this are this is what we're doing mm -hmm. okay it's not um gosh we feel for you yeah um I, I had a really good example actually so my it's a my private healthcare contacted me just to say we will cover anything in the way of cost for you to see a doctor remotely so you don't put extra pressure on the nhs brilliant yeah it's, absolutely it's that they didn't need to put adverts out to promote this they just need to do it and i will talk about that to 10 other people at least yeah that's very very smart because i mean bizarrely i mean healthcare was very slow at promoting that i, mean, I don't want to turn this into a remote video rant um but um uh, you know what pre one of the great things about this crisis is it does very rapidly kill dumb bureaucracy you know, and there probably were all sorts of, I mean, I'm involved in a local project um, uh, in Kent um, because I think the local angle is important. I think a lot of this will be, you know, for example, how you release the lockdown will vary from one locale to another, I think, fairly significantly. And um, one of the interesting things they're doing is that the entire property market's ground to a halt because certain property transactions require a wet signature. Yeah. <laughs> And, um, uh, you know, and there are banking transactions which require your presence in branch. Now, I mean, it, as a result, it took my wife and me about three months to remortgage because they required both of us to be present uh, in order to sign some bloody paperwork. Now, that stuff should have been killed years ago. You know, uh, you know a recording of a, of a virtual conversation should have been perfectly adequate. Yeah. To the purposes and so that that's one one good thing uh, but there is this thing that fascinates me which is that we seem to develop a capability to improvise and innovate in times of crisis which deserts us in normal times so i've written in the spectator just this week actually about you know what what mclaren can do in combination with you know dyson stroke um, GTEC, stroke a bunch of other companies, what they can do to produce, low, produce prototype and manufacture low-cost ventilators at speed. Why isn't that kind of uh, extraordinary achievement possible in more normal times? And it's a, question, it's a question we really have to ask because if we could replicate some of that uh, sense of urgency, um, what might we achieve in peacetime as it were if we could achieve the same kind of thing now i suspect it's because there's a natural risk aversion in business which tends to diminish in the face of a crisis because a crisis an uncertain crisis makes it to a degree acceptable to try and fail the rules change right That's and the fundamental rules change now my hunch is that uh, a if you worked for mclaren you'd find dealing with nhs procurement more or less intolerable um, you know, and just, you know, unutterably tedious, but also that under normal conditions, NHS procurement will be pr promote, promoting a sort of three-year comparison and test cycle. And um, it's amazing how much you can do. I mean, I think this about the advertising industry. I think one of the, one of the interesting things with the ad industry, of course, is that we're paid by the hour and there's almost no correlation between how long something takes and how valuable it is. That, that's so true. I think um, there's a fantastic tweet I've seen around um, Usain Bolt, and it says mm. it's ju for just under two minutes of running, he's paid 115 million pounds. And it's no, no, no. It's 20 years of having trained. Uh, go golf, by the way, is even more extreme because the actual time you spend with a club in contact with a ball 
in professional competition. Now, obviously, you have to practice. Yeah. But the amount of time that determines the difference between a a, a poor golfer, a scratch golfer, and a championship golfer is always fractions of a second. Yeah. So golf's even more extreme than Usain Bolt. And to be absolutely honest, what we have to accept about advertising um, is uh, that it's two things. It's not a business which is, you know, which which, which sits very neatly with the Marxist theory of the labor theory of value, which is kind of Marxist that, you know, uh, that value created is proportional to time spent. It's absolutely not that kind of thing. And that, you know, quite a lot of what an ad agency will do for you will be an expensive waste of time. The really important thing is <clears throat> once a year, <clears throat> I always say this to my team, look, once a year for any client, you should be able to describe in five sentences something which is worth a million pounds to them. Or in the case of small businesses, you know, a commensurate amount of, you know, worthwhile revenue. And that's really where the value comes from. The other stuff is is peripheral. Now, sometimes you have to do the other stuff to get to the million pounds or the five million pounds. But nevertheless, it's wrong. It's wrong not to acknowledge the fact that value creation is very uneven. And also, I think the other thing we have to, the other argument we have to win is that large areas of marketing activity are not deterministic, they're probabilistic. Mm -hmm. And this is the interesting thing, you see, which is that business in time of peace tries to be deterministic. If we run a competition between three existing ventilator companies and we award the contract to the one who meets our criteria at the lowest possible price, okay, then... Yeah, you will come up with a slightly better, slightly cheaper ventilator four years later, right? But you won't change the world, right? Now, going to a McLaren or going to a GTEC or a Dyson is a probabilistic thing. On average, it's a much better thing to do because you, fa you face a fairly significant chance that you'll create a game changer. But there's also the 20 to 30% downside risk you come up with nothing. And there's so many people in business who can't afford to come up with nothing because it's career destroying or reputation destroying that a lot of people always go for the low stakes incremental option, not the probabilistic um, high upside gamble. So, so do you think coming out of this, there's going to be people who are going to be more inclined to gamble or less? Because equally, I suppose well, well, there's a greater I would, risk. I would hope that. Yeah, I would hope we could we could recreate or maintain a little bit of that. If I use the word gung ho, that's a perfect word. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's rather like words like pirate or, or indeed the word creative. Okay, which is a word which, depending on your audience, either means something great or something terrifying. <laughs> okay, but capturing a little bit more appetite for uncertainty uh, would be inordinately valuable, I think, in economic growth. This is why what my book says is that most of the billion dollar businesses are not the result of rigorous market research and, you know, and market sizing. They're, result, they're the result of actually something which doesn't make sense in advance. And, you know, I, you know, I have to admit this to myself. If James Dyson had come up to me in, uh, let's say, 2005 and said, I think there's a market for a 600 pound vacuum cleaner, I would have gone, listen, mate, Jim, um, uh, you know, don't give up the day job. Right now, you know, my rational reasons would have been abundant, okay, and perfectly plausible. Which is one, 
a vacuum cleaner is a distressed purchase. You only buy one when your old one breaks or when you move out of rental accommodation. If possible, you scrounge an old one off your parents if you can get away with it. Um, and also, most people who can spend 600 quid on a vacuum cleaner probably have a cleaner so they don't even do their own hoovering, right? So the case against the existence of Dyson, I haven't even started on the hairdryer, by the way, right? The case against Dyson logically is incredibly strong, and yet it's a billion-dollar company. The case against Red Bull is very strong. It's a billion-dollar company, and so on and so forth. And so one of the interesting things is that logic always gets you to the same place as everybody else. And the real business value is created in not knowing your customer. It's created by knowing your customer better than he knows himself or she knows herself. Because the things, the wants that customers know they have have probably already been satisfied. Or they're a confabulation of what a, what a consumer likes to believe is important about a category in order to satisfy their own need to appear rational or sensible. So they're confabulated. Do you think there's any specific categories where we might see greater disruption in innovation? Um, I, I mean, healthcare would be a given. I would the, the, the area of healthcare, by the way, is enormous. Okay. Mm -hmm. And there is one book, a little bit of my own book covers this, but the real book to read um, is by Kevin Simler and Robin Hansen. It's called The Elephant in the Brain. And the point is they believe there's an evolved need for intervention in healthcare, which is actually nothing to do with objective outcomes. It's all to do with the feeling that you're cared for. Do you have kids, by the way? I don't know. You don't? Okay. Uh, anybody with kids, um, broadly speaking, the assumption will be, why do you go to the doctor? Because I'm ill and I want to get better. Now, even people who know that antibiotics don't work against viruses like being given antibiotics. And there's something there about the feeling of being cared for, but there's also something there. A huge number of visits to medical professionals are really um, about reassurance, not about treatment. Now, if you have children, this is even more acute, which is, to be honest, I don't think there's a, a very large chance indeed that my child has meningitis. But if it really were meningitis and I didn't take them to the doctor, I'd never forgive myself. So you go to the... Um, you go to the doctor as an extreme form of regret insurance. Now, I have an unethical solution to this problem, which is that you uh, employ actors because acting school is much cheaper than medical school, and you hire people who look like very plausible doctors, and you dress them up in white coats, and they have some minimal level of training, which is simply triage, but they pretend they're doctors and go, no, no, don't worry, it's going to be fine. Now, you couldn't do that because once a year they'd make a terrible mistake and the reputational uh, consequences would be dire. I only suggest that as a thought experiment, which is to say that a large part of what's going on is about reassurance, it's not about treatment. And the health service hasn't made... Um, now, one of the interesting things is that during this crisis, I would argue that people are, going, people are going to the hospitals for treatment. They are going much, much less for reassurance because the risk attendant on it has hugely reduced what you might call discretionary uh, health visits. Now, some of this will manifest itself in rather poor health outcomes in a few months' time, by the way. But some of it has also manifested itself in extraordinary cost savings. Now, I don't know if you can separate the one from the other reliably. Okay. In other words, what is just in case activity and what is 
worrying because people are actually sitting on potentially um, dangerous conditions for fear of visiting a hospital or visiting a GP. And I don't, you know, uh, this is a huge economic, um, uh, uh, this will be a huge economic project to look at what extent of reduced doctor use uh, during this crisis for non-coronavirus um, conditions, what proportion of that is actually um, disastrous and what proportion of it is beneficial. But that, that, that is, in a sense, it's a psychological question. I half-jokingly said that one of the great mistakes they made is allowing people to call accident and emergency A&E. Because when it was called accident and emergency, you felt a bit bad going there with a bad cold. It is, and labels uh, are so powerful, right? It, labels can be very powerful, yeah. And A&E kind of went, oh, I don't know, what should we do this weekend? Should we go to B&Q or should we go to A&E? <laughs> you know, and so, um, it, 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 now, by the way, what I don't want anybody to do is get really angry and say, Sutherland, you're talking bollocks and it's dangerous, because I acknowledge the fact that what I'm suggesting is dangerous. I, when I'm discussing these ideas, they're not ideas which should be implemented without an extraordinary amount of rigorous um, measurement and uh, assessment. Don't try this at home, kids. Do not try this at home. But at the same time, they're worth exploring. Because the assumption in medicine is that everybody goes to the doctor for the same reason. Now, marketers, who, of course, aren't very present, marketing thinking is not very present in, in, in British medicine. But marketers are at least familiar with the idea that you can sell the same thing to three different people for three different reasons. And they are at least cognizant of the idea that the same product can have a totally different meaning, depending on context and circumstances, to different people. And so if you're trying to optimize the efficient provision of healthcare, understanding that differentiation between what people are using healthcare for might be a very, very useful. To read out this in more, in more detail, read The Elephant in the Brain, one of the things similar and um, Hansen suggests is that at some level, if you look at increasing healthcare per head as a proportion of GDP, what you seem to see if you plot it is that the UK, by the way, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't spend too much on the NHS. I think we can spend more on the NHS. And I think people like a degree of waste in healthcare. I'm not, I'm not suggesting we turn this into a complete efficiency competition because that isn't what people want. And people are paying for this so that, you know, they should get what they want to an extent. Um, but, but what you do see is that as the amount spent on healthcare per head increases, the benefits to longevity and quality of life flatten off and even start to decline because you have a tendency to over-intervention and over-medication. And at some point, the urge to be treated and the urge to treat people, and the biases are present both in the demand side and the supply side. Um, very simply, as a doctor, you can get sued for doing nothing, but you can't get sued, you can't get sued for referring someone to a consultant. So there is an excessive tendency to intervene. Okay? Um, those two biases, if left unchecked, will lead people to spend an amount on healthcare which would be actually suboptimal in terms of the intended outcome. Fascinating. And so, um, so healthcare is one area where I think we can revolutionise this. Financial services is another because I think most bankers think people think like bankers. 
which means they think they think like economists and most people don't. So, you know, early work by Shlomo Bernazzi, uh, Richard Thaler, um, other people on things like cookie jar um, budgeting um, and, um, uh, you know, the, the Save More Tomorrow pension. Uh, you know, really, really interesting ideas where you present the same financial product under a different rubric and people's perception of it changes completely. Um, and then th a third category, which would be enormous, would be transportation. Yep. But to be absolutely honest, uh, you know, because I think transportation optimizes engineering metrics and it's in some ways the least customer centric um, uh, uh, discipline. Rail is particularly extreme, I think, because it's dominated by a very male engineering culture, uh, which prioritizes, if you like, the, uh, um, the, the metrics of engineering, speed, time, distance, punctuality, over the, met over the messier, less linear human metrics of uh, the enjoyment and otherwise, you know, the value of the journey as a whole. Fantastic, thank you. I've got one final question before we leave. Um, what kind of advice would you give to marketers right now? Um, it's obviously a particularly challenging time and certainly for the foreseeable, there's going to be a lot of challenges ahead. What do you think marketers need to be doing to kind of power through this and come out the other side in a good position? Um, I think um, a very interesting case in point is looking after your existing customer base disproportionately well. And the reason for that is I think that most, most economics covers what you might call transactional capitalism. It's one-off exchanges between anonymous individuals uh, seeking to maximize their expected utility in the single standalone exchange. And where economics gets consumers wrong is that most consumers are instinctively practicing relational capitalism, which is they, I'll give you a very simple example of relational capitalism. Uh, if you have a letter of complaint to a utility, the most common, um, uh, uh, the most common uh, opening sentence would be something along the lines of, I have been a customer of yours for 10 years. Imagine my horror when. And we expect the nature of exchange to change over time. As we establish arguably trust with the seller, um, as, as arguably we've demonstrated our loyalty and therefore we, respect, we expect a degree of reciprocation on the part of the, um, of the business we're doing business with. And so Ocado is a very interesting case here because I think they got this right. I've been a lifelong Ocado customer since they existed and I pretty much signed up for Ocado on demand um, uh, as soon as I joined. And they have done a very correct thing, which is economic, pure selfish economic logic might suggest sign up loads of new customers and uh, basically serve the people who are um, you know, most profitable to you while get while price gouging like crazy. Okay, that's what conventional economic logic would suggest they do, because they understand relational capitalism. They give priority booking first of all to people most in need. So if you register with them as someone elderly or isolated or has difficulty getting to the shops, you get priority number uno, uh, and then their most regular and long-standing customers come second. And they, in fact, refused very early in the, in, the, in the crisis, they refused to take on new custom. Yeah, I think it's incredibly smart. Similarly, I'm, I'm an Ocado um, customer and I saw that and I, I, was, I was very impressed by, by their approach. 
And, and, and so it's a very interesting thing. It's what you do that matters. And, you know, but also it's all this talk about, you know, loyalty, purpose, etc. Um, it's actually meaningless 90% uh, of the time. Okay. The, what you might call the decisive moments or the crunch moments uh, in terms of forming a brand perception are often what happens in a crisis. So the example I was given of this is, Unlike a procurement person, I always use the same taxi firm in Seven Oaks. They're quite expensive. I use them a lot. Why do I always use them? Because I want to establish a relationship with them. Because one day I know it's going to be snowing and my wife's car is going to break down. And I need them to help me out rather than just a random punter. Okay. And so there's a kind of um, uh, signaling of intent that goes with customer loyalty. Now, at... When, when it snows and my wife's car breaks down, one of two things will happen. They will rescue my wife from her snowed-in car, and I will feel entirely vindicated in my choice of taxi firm and will use them even more determinedly in the future, or they will let me down, in which case I will never use them ever again in my life. And that's what I mean by, you know, crunch points and how people treat you um, at, uh, under normal circumstances you know, there's a huge amount of what you might call, you know, to be honest, symbolic um, hot air, what would you call it? cheap talk. And how people often judge entities is not how they behave, uh, you know, in the average working environment of, you know, uh, you know, a typical day in 2019. Um, how they judge organisations is, is how they behave in extremists. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I would be looking at doing is disproportionately looking at extreme users and extreme emotional reactions to see what you can do. And I think just to sign off on that really important point, I think it's, it's about what you do. I think you raised I mean, Mark, Mark Ritson makes the fantastic point. I'm too young to remember this, but Marks and Spencer's enjoyed a very, very high reputation for very many, many years after World War II because they turned over their resources to producing uniforms and essential war supplies. And they did that voluntarily and they did it spontaneously. And it's worth remembering that in a weird way, we're more human in evolutionary terms, we're common, albeit invisible enemy, than we are under normal economic conditions. You know, to some extent, these conditions are what we've evolved for. And, um, uh, you know, what makes humans super cooperators is not the fact that we had it cushy for a million years. We had a million years where unless you could actually drop individual differences in service of a greater good, uh, your tribe got overrun. And it's a book by Peter Turchin, if you're interested, uh, exactly on this, why it was, you know, war and conflict that essentially created human, you know, um, asibaya, I think it's called in, um, in, in Arabic, but a sense of sort of fellow feeling and uh, cooperation. And brands as kind of proxy people, just as we judge people um, uh, very, very harshly under these conditions, you know, there's been quite a lot of, you know, celebrity, I think quite a lot of celebrities have misplayed this, by the way, you know, grumbling about being trapped in a mansion. <laughs> Um, and um, uh, so uh, how you behave under these conditions is much, much more uh, 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 effective of uh, reputational valuations and judgment than how you behave on an average day when you just want to replace a pair of socks. Absolutely. 
Thank you so much, Rory. Um, it's been absolutely a pleasure, a real, real pleasure. Honestly, I've been really looking forward to this one. And um, for all of our listeners, you have to grab a, book, a copy of, of Rory's book, The Alchemist. Um, we will also be making some copies available today. We'll be giving a few copies away. But don't wait for us to win a copy. Go and grab one from Amazon or local store. And one plug, if I'm allowed it, if you, can block you can, out, yeah. if you can block out Friday the 12th of June in your diaries, just very vaguely, you don't have to block out the whole day, but most of it, our Nunstock Margate uh, Festival has obviously gone the way of all conferences, and we're holding it virtually, we're holding it globally, kicking off in Australia early in the morning, and then basically chasing the sun across to the west coast of the States. Um, and it will have a whole series of enormous numbers of uh, academics, business practitioners, and other panjandra from the world of uh, behavioral science. And it will be available, I hope, free, or perhaps for a small voluntary donation, but not, not for profit, uh, throughout that day. And uh, the more of it you can attend, the better. It'd be a huge delight to uh, see you there, albeit virtually. Fantastic. And we'll be including a link to that event in our chat channel for you. Oh, you're too kind. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. Honestly, really do appreciate the time, Rory. Absolute <coughs> pleasure. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you very much indeed.